0: Hello and welcome to the Can-Do MS podcast. My name is Rachel Lotti and I'm the programs coordinator for Can-Do Multiple Sclerosis. We're excited for today's podcast, which is the final episode in our three-part Relapse and MS series where you'll learn how to manage potential relapse-related challenges at home, work, and in your relationships. In this podcast, You'll hear from a couple living with MS as they share their experiences on how MS relapses have impacted their relationship as a couple as well as their relationships with family and friends. Today, we have psychologist Roz Kalb and couple Laura and Michael to talk about how MS relapses have affected their relationships. So welcome to our speakers. I'd now like to turn the podcast over to Roz to kick off today's discussion.
1: Thanks very much, Rachel. I'm, I'm so excited to, to be here um, because I had the pleasure um, of meeting this lovely couple, uh, Laura and Michael, at a Can Do program a couple of years ago. And so this is our chance to get reacquainted again. So thank you, uh, Laura and Michael, for generously offering to do this. So I'm going to um, ask you some questions about your experiences with relapses Um relapses, in my experience, because they're so unpredictable and so variable from one time to the next, tend to cause people quite a bit of anxiety as they anticipate them, but also put them into a bit of crisis mode when they happen and they have to make adjustments in their everyday lives. So I'm I'm looking forward to talking to you about your experiences, but let's start first by getting some
2: background on you. So how did the two of you meet? Hi, I'm Laura, and Michael and I met When we were undergraduates at Colorado State University, which is in the town we live in, um, he was the president of College Council, and I was running a chemistry outreach program. um, And he approached me to do some demonstrations for his group. And so that's how we met um, when we were in college.
3: And I would say that the rest is kind of history. We, We dated from that point going forward and been together ever since.
1: So how long have you been together now?
2: Fourteen years.
1: Wow! And when in that wonderful fourteen-year history uh, did MS join the family?
2: Uh, MS joined us about uh, eight years into our relationship.
1: That must have been quite a, a shock for the two of you. That right, starting at that point, you must have started with a, a relapse that that led to your diagnosis. So you had to deal with. Um, the challenges of MS all of a sudden when that happened.
3: Right, and and to add to all of that stress, uh, we were actually long distance at the time. I was at uh, Georgia getting my PhD and she was still in Colorado working on her PhD. And so it was really shocking to, to hear what was happening and trying to figure out what was going on. And then on top of that, not being there to go through, her, through everything with her. And it, it, it was quite a mess, to be honest.
1: Yes, and I, I think that the challenges of communication are always there, but you two must be masters at it, so we will definitely talk more about that. Um, Laura, can you describe uh, for our listeners what, what your initial relapse or maybe some of the subsequent relapses have been like for you? Are they all the same? Are they different?
2: Yeah, I, I sort of have two major classes, I guess I will call them, of relapses. I have optic neuritis, which happens to occur on in my left eyeball. Um, and what that is and how I experience it is basically if you had looked at the sun without your sunglasses on and sort of have that blurred out vision that's really washed out, um, that's what I experience. Um, sometimes I experience it with pain as well, and sometimes I haven't. Um, but I've had that particular relapse about five times. Um, and then I've also had, s- but sort of my second class of issues in relapse land is what I would classify as sensory. Um, I've had my hands and feet be numb, or I've had a burning sensation, um, in particular down my left leg. And so those are kind of the types of relapses that I've had, and I've had each of those several times over the course of. my diagnosis
1: so the symptoms that that you're describing laura are, are primarily invisible so when you when you when this first happened you had to describe them to michael over the phone which i think is challenging when this kind of thing happens in person now um first of all how do you let michael know and michael how can you tell what's what's going on with laura
2: I guess I would say in terms of trying to talk about it, I try to be as descriptive as possible. Um, but you're totally correct. It is very invisible. Um, the other thing that I've noticed just myself personally, when I start to experience relapse is it's not always like optic neuritis, not optic neuritis, right? There's sort of a continuum of new sensations, um, For the patient, for myself, and so um, you kind of feel weird, and I don't know that there's any other way to describe it. Um, And so I, I basically try to tell him, you know, I don't quite know what's going on yet, but I feel weird. This is kind of what's happening.
3: And from my end, I think the first thing I learned, and luckily I learned this very early on, is to make sure she knows that I don't think she's making anything up. I think. There's nothing more frustrating than a patient to have somebody not believe that, you know, what they're saying is true. And and we have such a strong level of trust that I think that goes without saying, but I've always made a point to make sure that whatever she says, I, I totally understand and work around and never second guess what is occurring. Um, but having said that, it, it is really challenging to to understand what she's going through. And then how, how do you deal with that? I mean, it's. It's one of those things where it's because it's invisible and, and I just have her words to go on. I I, I kind of take shots in the dark on, on what we can do and what we can't do and how to proceed. And it, it, it's challenging, but she does a really good job of telling me what's going on.
1: Well, and it sounds like you do a really good job of listening. So uh, congratulations to both of you on that. So how do these relapses affect your day-to-day life?
2: It really varies. A lot. Um, typically with relapse, I also experience a much higher level of fatigue. Um, and so I have to pass on doing more activities and, and I try to save up my vacation at sick time if, if I'm not feeling well enough to go to work. Um, of course, my relapses tend to be pretty long and, and you generally can't take um, months and months off work. Um, but besides that, I just try to communicate with people to some degree. At the same time, I also sort of isolate myself because I'm generally not feeling great. Um, So you don't want to just be out and about in the world doing everything that you normally would do.
1: So from the time that I met you and got to know you a little bit at Can Do, I know that you're a very independent person. So how do you communicate with Michael about how to manage those changes in everyday life? How do you let him know when you need help or when you don't need help so that he doesn't have to guess or read your mind?
2: It it really is as simple as saying, hey, I can't see well enough to drive today and I have a doctor's appointment. Can you take me? Kinds of things. Um, and also making sure that he's not the only person Um, who I'm relying on for that kind of help, um, because he also has a full time job and may or may not be able to take multiple days off in a row um, to go to every single doctor's appointment or every single um, steroid infusion or whatever it is.
1: How is that for you, Michael? I mean, it must be hard to miss out on some of those um, things that that Laura needs to do like go to the the doctor but you also have a very busy life of your own so how has it been for you to to juggle that
3: it's been very challenging um I think it's one of those things where I find myself walking a very fine line and and unfortunately to to kind of just uh contradict Laura it's not that simple um because what i i find myself doing is not wanting to make her feel like an invalid where I never ask her to help or do anything and not push her, but at the same time, make sure I don't push her too far and overextend her. And so a lot of that's internal dialogue that I have with myself that I should be more forthcoming with. But it's a, you know, it's a balance that we play and it uh, it definitely has an impact on, you know, our careers and our, our separate lives. But it's something that, you know, you make a commitment to working through and, and then you just do that. And, that's not that simple, but it's nice to say out loud anyway. Does it get better with practice, you two? For me, it does. The, the more we do it, the more refined I get at trying to help. Um, and sometimes helping means not doing anything, which is also okay. But at the same time, we've had so many vari- variable experiences that it it's hard to always predict and use the same skill set I just learned and apply it to a new situation.
2: Right, because
1: it's never quite
2: the same, is it? No. And I would say um, every relapse is different and something that I thought worked really great with the last one, even if it's optic neuritis again, is not working this time. And so that leads to a level of frustration um, because you're like, well, this worked last time. Why is it not working now? Kind of thing. Um, and also the longer distance there is between relapses, especially for me as the patient, I kind of forget those good communication skills, or I forget, you know, how I was doing this so well last time. And so that's sort of a blessing and a curse in the sense that you don't want to be having a lot of relapses and be really good at communicating and, and doing that in a practiced way. But at the same time, you also don't want to forget those skills if you haven't had a relapse for six months or a year. Absolutely. So,
1: so when there's a little bit of time, between relapses or a long period of time, there must be concerns about the next one. When might it happen? What might it be like? So what kinds of fears or concerns do you have Laura first? And and then we'll talk to Michael about his.
2: I feel like over time as a patient, that's really evolved for me. Initially, I was really worried about the next relapse. Like, is the next shoe going to fall? You know, am I going to get whatever back that, whether it's vision or sensation after the relapse is over, or is this the new reality? Um, and it's really hard to know that. Um, but I also stressed myself out a lot about that. And within the last few years, I've just decided it's kind of not worth the stress. Um, and that, I kind of have to let some of that go. So I would say that in many ways I've sort of seen fear and worry as not being productive for me um, and kind of let that go because it hasn't served me.
3: I would say for myself um, that, yeah, I have the same sort of fear. I, I don't know how long each relapse is going to be, when they're going to happen. Is this going to be the relapse that sticks? I, I I just don't know. And so it's always worrying. You know, it's always sometimes her relapses are really bad. And to think she would be like that forever is really challenging. It just changes the way you you look at everything. But since in the last couple of years, she's kind of let go of some of that anxiety and fear has helped me let go of some of that anxiety and fear. And I've been trying my best to focus on the here and now and the day to day when it's good. And that, that helps a lot. Um, the hardest part is when you start seeing the big picture and start worrying about the future and how this is all going to play out.
1: So do you do that worrying about the future in your own heads or do you find that you can talk about those fears for the future with one another without creating too much anxiety?
3: Uh, For me, I talk to Laura a lot about them. Uh, Maybe not as much as I should, but I definitely talk a lot about them. Um, It's good to have them out there. It's a lot better than them festering. At least that's how it's been for me. Um, I'm kind of a talker, so that happens, but, uh, yeah, no, it's been good to talk about.
2: And, and for me, some of it is definitely still internal because I experience the physical sensations. Um, and so then you sort of have the internal debate with yourself. Well, this feels weird today. Should I tell everybody it feels weird because it's, you know, the beginning of something or not, or or those kinds of things. Um, And definitely I I worry about the future, but at the same time, that worry isn't always terribly productive. And I tell Michael about those worries, but I I found that channeling those worries into PT, OT, speech therapy, you know, finding a new way to stress relieve or something, doing something, um, or getting more resources, or whatever it is, like actually doing something helps me a lot more than just worrying.
1: When when you have had these conversations about the unpredictable future, or what might happen if there were a bad relapse, are you also talking about some strategies or plans you would put into place now in case something like that happened? Do you have any any
2: plans in your back pocket, so to speak? Um, kind of, but I feel like every relapse I've had has been so different that planning is sometimes. Initially, when I was diagnosed, I was so much a planner and and I was ready for anything, and and I found that I didn't actually end up using any of those plans um, because they weren't useful to me, um, and so now instead of planning i guess i just try to find all the possible resources and and kind of have an idea about what i would execute if i found that i needed it
3: and for me it's the same thing um we actually letting go of planning for relapse because they've been so varied for us has actually helped a lot and, and not having to worry about, well, this is the plan. So we stick to more being more fluid and dynamic about what's happening and, and how we you know, work together towards it makes it a lot easier because they, they are varied and it, it really helps me not worry about am I doing something wrong instead of being, okay, we're here now, let, let's just focus on this.
1: So you sound like a wonderful uh, support team for each other you talk a lot and you're very open with your feelings and your concerns. Who else is in your support network?
2: Um, well, given that Michael was away at graduate school for six years um, during my initial um, MS diagnosis, I have some, some good friends in my area um, and a couple of sort of families in that way um, who helped me to navigate things, who helped who, you know, went with me to the doctor's appointments and those kinds of things. Um, so those people are part of my support network.
3: For myself, I uh, I don't really have a strong support network. Um, I have sought out some counseling. Um, that hasn't been going as great as I thought. Um, some of it's probably me. I don't know. It's hard to judge if you're good at counseling, but th- that's neither here nor there. I just, I'm going to keep working it until I find something that, that really works for me. But, but fighting something has become something of a mantra that I am focused on trying to do.
1: Laura, you mentioned before that that you do uh, keep very careful track of your vacation days, and you try to make sure that you have um, time available when you need it to manage a relapse. Has that worked for you as well, Michael?
3: Uh, so far, yeah. We've uh, not gone on a lot of vacations. We do take them, but they're, they're pretty rare, and uh, I've saved up about five weeks worth of vacation. So at the drop of a hat, we, we can do whatever we need to do. And uh, I actually work in a place that's pretty understand understanding of these things. So, so that's not too big of an issue. But yeah, it's definitely something that, you know, we have it when we need it. And we really focus on making sure that's available.
1: That's really, really good planning. Um, so when these relapses happen, you're very, very comfortable, apparently, talking to each other, about what's happening do you have extended family as well as these friends you mentioned who you need to communicate with about a relapse
2: yeah absolutely and and I think that's kind of a very evolving um thing in terms of communicating with others because I feel like you and your partner kind of learn like your tells and and you know, I get tired and a little secluded when I'm relapsing, but other people who might not be with you all the time, um, don't necessarily know those things and their level of understanding about MS and about relapses can be very different. Um, and I find it's hard to communicate with them about relapses, especially when I'm having one, um, only because I'm tired and kind of just want to go to bed and and not tell you about all these things and answer all your questions and, you know, reassure you that I'm okay. Um, and so that's, that's a, a work in progress.
1: Uh, do those uh, friends and family call on you, Michael, for, for more information I and mean, do you find yourself peppered with emails or phone calls about what's going on?
3: Um, so I, my experience when I talk to, to family is it's, pretty fear inducing. When we talk about MS, it's pretty scary to them. They don't really fully understand. And I've done my best to kind of walk them through it, but it's very overwhelming. Um, They, they just, I don't think they fully under kind of grasp what's going on. So that's, that's more of a work in progress. Um, I have to admit it as someone external this can be extremely overwhelming to hear you know just all the different things that are associated with it knowing that there's not really a cure out there and and this is just you know a situation you have to live with and focus on and i've found that a lot of people who you know just aren't necessarily ready to hear that it, they they can struggle with it so it becomes more of a hindrance to explain it to them than, than a benefit to have them involved in that immediate process
1: so is the biggest challenge just to find a way to reassure them that you're getting good care and taking good care of yourselves?
3: Yeah, le- um, it, it is. They, Everyone has an opinion when it comes to medical stuff, I've noticed. And uh, not always is that opinion great. And so it's kind of hard to explain to them, no, we, we've got it under control. And this is what control looks like. And that that's hard for a lot of people who are external to it to, to know that, you know, not everything's controllable and everything has a, a magic pill. And, and, you know, we struggle with it, but we do our best and, and we're doing pretty well with it.
1: Uh, you certainly are. And it sounds like you're both kind of experts at dealing with things you have learned you can't control. And certainly for some other people in your lives who haven't faced similar challenges, they're not as comfortable. With the unpredictable or the uncontrollable, so trying to, trying to convey your, um, what you've learned, and also conveying that you're taking care of each other, I think is is a, a great uh, reassurance for the people who care about you both. So that's great. Thanks. So when a when a relapse happens, as I said at the beginning, it, it can feel like a little bit of a crisis in your life out of the blue that, that shakes your everyday lives up. So what is, what is crisis mode look like for the two of you? What happens when you guys go into crisis mode?
2: Um, crisis mode. I was going to say, I, I love that you said it's a little bit of a crisis mode. Um, in reality, I would say that it's it's usually like the central thing that you spend all day every day thinking about when it's happening, um, which is kind of unfortunate, <laughs> but it's true. Um, so crisis mode is not just about relapse. It's about, at least for me, it's about my own internal dialogue as well. Um, you know, this is the new normal. And I'm really worried about this. This is how it's always going to feel. How am I going to cope with that? Um, those kinds of things. And so I have previously gotten super stressed out. And that, in many ways, for me, makes the, the relapse worse. Um, so then I'm not sleeping. I'm not doing a good job taking care of myself. I'm not seeking help. I'm just sort of spinning. Um, and so that's what crisis mode looks like for me. Um, and I don't know that I would encourage anyone to do that. Um, I would try to do better coping strategies. And and I think the only way to really get there was I learned that being stressed out wasn't helping.
3: And I, I would have to say that there has been times when I've not helped that stress where I'm a natural fixer. It's it's what I like to do. And when she's struggling and I'm like, let's do X, let's do Y, let's do Z. And I end up putting more stress in the situation that is necessary. And that has not been good. And it's taken me a while to learn that and to back off and be like, okay, let's ride this out for a little bit and see what happens. Let's focus on some creature comforts and, and, and just kind of take things slower that when I've slowed down, that seems to help everything else where to take the stress or the the urgency out of the situation, and then just kind of focus on what we can do, what we can fix, and and that has been helpful. I'm I'm not the best at it. I'm still a work in progress, but but we're getting there.
2: Well, and and for me also, crisis mode involves being concerned about the healthcare provider and going to the doctor and going to the hospital and getting this infusion or or all of those components and um you can be super worried about those things um but those people are going to operate to some degree on the timeline they're going to operate on you know they have an appointment on friday or whatever it is um and honestly it it doesn't hurt you really if if you have to wait and you know it takes them a couple days to set up whatever it may not be comfortable for you as the patient um, but in many ways, doing whatever the, the medical thing is, like maybe the IV steroids or something like that is also not comfortable. So just to like being very here and now, this is where we're at, this is what we're doing. Um, relapses, generally speaking, aren't, well, they're very uncomfortable, at least for me, um, they're not life-threatening. Um, and so just knowing that Uh, kind of takes it down a notch.
3: And I'd like to interject that Laura has been an angel when it comes to dealing with the healthcare system. She has really taken the reins on dealing with insurance in a way that I think would stress me out beyond belief. So I really want to give her props for handling that because that is something, a skill set I just do not possess well to to handle all that and maintain as stress-free about it as she does, considering.
1: That's a remarkable skill. I think maybe you should write a book about that, Laura.
2: I've considered that Um, it. Yeah. Well, but that's the other thing. Like you get on the phone with these people and and they don't know your situation and they don't you know, they're just trying to do their job. And and so having a real reality check that even though you were experiencing something that is very in your body, real to you doesn't mean that anyone else is experiencing that.
1: I just want to circle back to one thing you said before that I think is is really helpful and important uh, for our listeners, the reminder that although a relapse may feel extremely uncomfortable and frightening, um, it is reassuring to know that it hardly ever involves any real medical emergency so that having to wait to see the doctor is frustrating Um, and anxiety provoking, but it's not dangerous. It's not unhealthy for you. And I think the fact that you've been able to teach yourself that, learn it and live with it really does help cut down on that stress a little bit.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, and many times it happens for myself at a time when, you, you know, it doesn't conveniently happen on Monday morning when when I can call the doctor and get in that week, it happens on Friday night, right? And and then your choices are urgent care and the ER and and those kinds of places are very urgent, life-threatening, you know, we got to treat you now sort of situations. And you definitely, I, I have gone to the ER for um, relapses before, um, but being able to take that, that environment and take their stress level down a little bit, too. Like, okay, I've done this before. (laughs) Like, this is what I would like us to do. You could run these tests or what, you know, knowing that um, and talking about it with my doctor beforehand, like now he knows he could get a call and he could talk to those people and kind of tell them, what's going
3: on. And that's where one area where maybe being a fixer has helped because I can be in that situation and I don't have any fear about the doctors or the medical profession. So I can be calm and help them focus and say, look, th- we've done this before. Let's, let's just work the situation that we have and, and just see if there's anything we can talk about or do and, and really take the stress and, and kind of the emotion out of it and be Laura's uh, calming voice when she can't always be.
1: So it sounds, Michael, as though you have gotten to know Laura's healthcare providers, uh, I guess, by going to doctor's visits or being part of these uh, relapse events. Um, and has that helped you to feel more comfortable that you also know the team who's working with Laura?
3: Absolutely. Um, I've also talked to her neurologist uh, at a couple of different points, um, including uh, he does uh, the occasional like uh, open forum talk at a restaurant, and, and talking to him there and, and really understanding you know where he's coming from and the treatment that Laura's on. It does you know help. Uh, quench a lot of my anxiety and fears that to know that we we have a do a good uh, neurologist who really is thinking about Laura and that helps me a lot knowing that the care she's getting is in you know the the best light and, and really focused on her that that helps me a lot.
1: So we all have coping strategies, uh, some better than others, some more effective than others, but we all develop them. Could you, Laura, tell me a little bit about? The coping strategies that you have used in these stressful events, some of the ones that have turned out to be not so good coping strategies, and then maybe some ones that you found that are are better.
2: Yeah, so initially, when I was diagnosed, a lot of my coping strategies were and and I actually learned this when I ended up uh, going to speak with a counselor, but I was practicing um being scared in my own head and being worried. Um, So I was like, okay, so my doctor's appointment is two days from now. And like I just practice that um and get myself worked up and stressed out about it. Um and my counselor was like, okay, well what if we don't do that? And I was like, well I don't know how to not do that. Like (laughs) doesn't make sense to me. Like I should be worried about it. And she really challenged me to just try not to have that internal dialogue um, to replace it with something else or to um, for example, I had bad reactions sometimes to medications and things. And, and a lot of that was just my own stress um, and working myself up. And so we found ways to relax. Um, so I listen to meditations now, um, and things like that. And sometimes it just helps to like, um, talk about it or write it down or things like that. Um, since my diagnosis, I've been pretty good about keeping notes, whether that's just for myself or to talk to my doctor about. Um, so things like that. I also tried, um, consuming alcohol and drugs and those kinds of things, that's not really a good coping strategy. That generally makes you feel a whole lot worse. Um, But asking for help and seeking resources and not practicing being stressed um, is really probably my best coping strategy.
1: How about you, Mike?
3: So I... Do a variety of things. Um, I think the thing that helps me out the most is I talk to Laura about all this. Just sometimes getting it out there helps a lot. So it's not just all in my head, that's very useful. Um, Not always, sometimes getting it out there then puts the ugly thing that we all have to deal with in front of us and that's not great, but long run, it's better, just not necessarily the short term. Um, I also, this is a a hangover from grad school. I, I meditate before I go to bed I just take 10 minutes. and. And i just focus on an activity like walking backwards through a door helps calm me down so i can sleep and i appreciate that and then i would i would definitely say that you know once or twice a month i will just blow off everything go out with friends and tie a couple of drinks on and have a good time and forget all about everything and that might not be the healthiest thing but man every now and then that feels great to just the outside of the situation for a little bit is really, really helpful. And, and it's taken me a while to not feel guilty about that. But once I didn't feel guilty about it, it felt great. And I think it's actually helped us both out by doing that.
1: So we all know that relapses happen um, unpredictably. Um, but what strategies do you use, um, if any, to try to plan for potential relapses or even to try to uh, prevent them from
2: happening? I was going to say I think that in many ways um, planning for relapse is difficult um, but to some degree preventing relapse is a little bit of a lifestyle choice um, to some degree not to say that if you have a relapse that's because you've messed up something in your lifestyle. Um, but the healthier I can be, the better food choices I can do, the more I can exercise, the more I can reduce my stress, um, are all good prevention and planning situations. Um, because if you're just always running around and not, and, and always super stressed out, um, That in my case tends to lead to relapses. Um, The other sort of prevention strategy, I guess I would say, is um, that I am on a disease modifying therapy, and I feel like that and continuing to be on it has helped decrease my relapses.
1: The two of you have done such a remarkable job managing this intrusion in your life um, over quite a few years now. Do you have any advice for others that you would like to share about how to handle um, this kind of uh, challenge?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, MS relapses and MS in general is, is a major life stress. And so you really have to connect with yourself and figure out how, How you practice being stressed, how you get stressed out, what you do when you're stressed out, if that's helpful to you and serving you or not. Um, And I found that a lot of the way that I previously dealt with stress um, was not helpful to me. And so then you have to be okay with changing it like this isn't serving me and I have to do something radically different. So in some ways, I'm actually grateful to have MS um, because it's made me be very real and honest with myself um, and figuring out like what I can and can't do as a person and not promising everything to everyone. Um, I was going to say the other component that I feel like MS has really taught me is To sort of get over all the hangups you have personally about, oh, I should or shouldn't say this to somebody or this is or isn't okay. And I'm not saying throw all social norms out the window, but a lot of them I found don't actually serve people. And if you just are honest um, and can tell people, you know, I'm having a bad day or this is what's going on or I don't really know yet and I feel kind of weird about it. Um that that sort of level of honesty helps a lot as well,
3: um, I would say that the thing I would tell other people is this is really, really hard um don't don't think that it's not, and it's okay to fail at it. it's okay to be bad at it. you're gonna be bad at it for a while. I think I'm still bad at it, I'm still learning a lot, and it's one of those things where I think if I approach it from like uh I want to be there and be supportive and be helpful that as long as I focus on that and try to get better and, and learn from mistakes or, or even just, you know, try something new, that that's really helpful. But I don't want people to feel like we have all the answers. We sure do not. And it is a very hard thing to go through. And it's one of those things where you, you know, you just have to focus on what you have and be happy with, you know, what you have when you can, and you're not always going to be great at it. And that's okay. It, it's, it's a long road. It's a hard road, but You can get through it. Everyone can.
1: Is there anything as a couple that you think has grown for you as a result of sharing this experience together that you would like other couples to know?
3: Um, I would say that it's really amped up our honesty with each other, like there is no such thing as a secret between us. I mean, we're at, I think we're at the point now where she knows my feelings as fast as I do, which is actually great and horrible at the same time. But overall, it's a very good thing. Um, and that uh, as a couple, it has made us really focus on us. Like it, we, it takes a lot of the other stress out of a lot of other things. And we really need to focus on what we're doing and how we're doing things. And that can be really, you know, really empowering to know that we're really focused on this and us and how we together as a team get through it. Um, It took a while to get there, but it, it has been building and building our relationship stronger because of it.
2: I completely agree. And, and just say that in the other thing that it has really done for us is if one or the other of us is messing up, whatever that means, like not communicating well or something like that, you can honestly say to the other person, like, this is not working. We have to do this differently. And undergoing that change process is just faster and easier the more we do it.
1: I'm glad to hear that this experience has helped you to uh, make such a, a wonderful relationship out of something that was wonderful, apparently, to begin with, but has um, clearly grown in wonderful ways. All right,
0: everybody. That's all the time we had today. But thank you to Laura and Michael for sharing your experiences. And then of course I want to say thank you to Roz for guiding today's discussion.
1: Oh well it was my my pleasure. I was so glad to reconnect with Laura and Michael. And as always, I learn every time I talk to people living with MS from their experiences. So thank you so much for sharing so openly and beautifully what your experience has been
0: this podcast is part of the relapse and ms series a collaborative initiative led by can do ms and malincrod to better understand how ms relapses can impact your home work and relationships please remember to listen to all three podcasts in the relapse and ms series which are available on our website and Apple Podcasts. We also encourage you to view our Relapse and MS webinar, which is available on our website, cando-ms.org relapse. Thank you for joining us.